The Freedom Dividend Podcast represents my opinion on financial markets, investing, economics, and politics. All information disseminated on the podcast is not investment advice. Anyone seeking financial advice should look to contact the licensed broker or industry registered financial advisor. The Freedom Dividend Podcast is brought to you by Perfect Spiral. Joe Miglio and John McCarthy take you on a football journey in this football podcast as they discuss the sport in depth. This 365-day, 24-7 football podcast discusses everything NFL. Off-season, draft, rumors, training camp, fantasy football, and of course, the season. Listen to Perfect Spiral anywhere you can get podcasts or on Spotify. The Q1 session wrapped up today as we closed out the first quarter of 2021. The major averages from the U.S. stock market all finished down today as we saw some adjustments to portfolios to end the quarter. The Dow Jones finished the day down 1.5%, S&P 500 down 1.57%, and the NASDAQ finished down 1.5% as well, and the Russell 2000 finished down 1%. Uh, Treasury yields rose slightly on the day, we finished the day on the U.S. 10-year Treasury at 2 spot, 379%. And we're really capping off what was a finishing rally for the last few weeks of the quarter. Remember, before when I did my last podcast, we were in bear market territory for most of the major averages, especially the NASDAQ. But we were in correction territory down over 10% from the highs in all the major U.S. averages. The S&P 500, though, rallied over 8% in the past two weeks alone. So we had a sharp rally over the past couple weeks and a sharp recovery as investors are starting to rotate and see how they're going to start allocating capital as we move into Q2. Now, it's very important to note, and I've mentioned before, some of the sharpest rallies occur in bear markets. It's very common to see the most heavy rallies that go straight up seemingly every single day for a couple weeks usually happen in bear markets. And they usually typically tend to happen very fast if there's going to be another downturn in the markets. So we'll look for that as we head into Q2. But what's really important to note is that this rally is being led by the most speculative uh, stocks in the market. If you look at stocks like the ARK Innovation Fund, that, that ETF was up over 27% from the lows just a few days ago. And remember, this stock has been hit very, very heavy. A lot of the names in this ETF have been crushed over the past year. Still very, very down from a year ago. But these stocks have rallied very sharply. You look at some of the more speculative names in the market. DoorDash, for example, up over 30% in the past few weeks. Look at stocks like uh, Virgin Galactic doing very well over the past week and a half or so. The gambling stocks coming back a bit. And if you look at the meme stocks, the meme stocks are starting to make a comeback again. GameStop is up over 130% from its lows. They actually announced a stock split uh, after hours today that's going to be occurring in the future. And of course, they have no business plan but they're just playing games in the market to try and entice more buyers to raise more capital. But again, the most important thing to note here is that the rally is occurring in the most speculative stocks. 
And that is a signal that we're probably headed lower in the markets from here eventually. Uh, if you think back to when the meme stocks first came out last year, when the meme stocks started to rally heavily, that was when the market was on its last leg of that bull market rally. But investor sentiment seems to be leaning here towards stocks as, again, we see the broader averages are making a comeback rally from their lows. If you look at Apple, Apple is up almost 16% over the past week and a half as well. But we're starting to see investors coming in and buying the dips in a lot of these stocks. And really, this investor sentiment seems to be leaning towards stocks because bonds are simply uninvestable. And I think a lot of money managers are starting to realize what I've realized about the bond market, that it is simply uninvestable in an environment where inflation is as high as it is and interest rates and yield payments on treasury bonds and on corporate bonds are just not enough to make up for the loss of purchasing power on those loans due to inflation. And I tend to agree with the typical money managers on the street when they're saying that they would rather own stocks in this situation, because even though there's a lot to worry about in the markets, it's still much better to own stocks than it is to own bonds. Because And Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey Gunlock pointed this out a few weeks ago, and he's been saying this for the past few years. But even though U.S. stock prices are almost at all-time record highs, they have never been more cheap than they are relative to treasury bonds. And that's because treasury bonds have had such low uh, interest payments for so long that they're really, again, uninvestable. They're, they're priced incredibly high. Again, you have to remember that the price of bonds is negatively correlated with the interest payment on the bonds. And so when interest rates go lower, the price of bonds goes higher. And bond prices haven't been as high as they've been relative to stocks in the history of financial markets. But while I agree that you should own stocks typically instead of having an any allocation towards bonds, I do disagree with some of the types of stocks investors are going for. You still continue to see, again, as I mentioned, the ARK Innovation ETF. It was hit hard today, down over 3% on the day, but that was with the general markets. But it's been recovering very nicely over the past couple of weeks. And I think a lot of investors think they're getting bargains by buying up the stocks in the ARK Innovation Fund or by buying the ARK Innovation Fund itself, uh, when really, again, you don't want to own growth stocks in the environment we're in either, in my opinion, because either interest rates have to rise. And if interest rates rise, growth stock valuations have to come way down. Or if interest rates don't rise and therefore inflation continues to run out of control, a lot of these companies are going to get hit hard with inflation. Look at Tesla. Tesla traded over $1,100 on the day. That stock has been in a huge rally as well. But again, if you look at inflation and you apply it to a stock like Tesla, Tesla is a company that does not have purchasing power or does not have the power to be able to pass on their costs to their customers, as well as some other value-oriented stocks. So, for example, if Tesla's costs rise by 10% in a given year, it is much more difficult for them to raise the prices of their, their vehicles by 10% as it would be for, say, a 
food manufacturer to raise the cost of food by 10%. Because obviously, regardless of how high the cost of food goes up, people have to buy it no matter what. But people don't have to buy high-end luxury cars if, if there is a slowing economy. And so to the extent that Tesla tries to pass their costs on to customers, they won't have as easy of a time passing on those costs without uh, cutting down their sales volume. So again, in an inflationary environment, you don't want to own growth stocks that have a much harder time passing on their rising costs onto their customers. You want to go into the more value-oriented stocks. One of the stocks in particular that's been driving the market for the past couple of years is Apple. And even though Apple is a growth stock, a lot of people like to look at Apple as a value stock because of the success of the company and its grasp over the entire global economy. But Apple has been a big reason for the rise in the markets over the past few weeks. As I mentioned, Apple is up over 16% in the past couple of weeks alone. And Apple is a major, major part of the U.S. uh, market. And it's also in almost all ETFs and uh, mutual funds. And so therefore, so goes Apple, so goes the rest of the market typically. But again, the real problem here is that investors are turning to stocks, which again has led to a a brief uh, comeback rally, relief rally in the markets. But the real problem here is that bonds are uninvestable. And I want to go over the yield curve because over the past couple weeks since I've been gone, a couple of key things have happened in the bond market. Bonds have really been getting hit very difficult and they've been having a very, very hard time over the past couple weeks. Now, if you recall, when I did a podcast going over uh, the, the setup for this year, I said that bonds were going to have a very tough time and that it's completely possible that we see an entire crash in the bond market. But bonds have got finally gotten hit very hard over the past few months. And that's actually one of the reasons for why stock prices have gotten hit so hard. Because remember, when bond prices go down, interest rates go up. When interest rates go up, stock prices come down, all else being equal. And so because the bond market is getting hit so hard, that's why the stock market has gotten hit so hard as well. Now, I think one of the reasons we've had a relief rally in stocks is because the bonds were being bought up a little bit over the past few weeks. There's a bit of a relief rally in bonds as well. But if you look at the interest rates on the U.S. Treasury bonds being issued, look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury. If you buy a U.S. 10-year Treasury bond and loan money to the government for 10 years right now, you will get a 2.388% interest rate per year every year for those 10 years. So in other words, you lock your money up in a loan for 10 years and you're only going to get paid 2.38% interest per year. Conversely, if you look at the five-year treasury rate, if you loan money to the government for five years, you're going to get 2.4% interest back. So in other words, if you make a five-year loan to the government, you'll get more interest than if you make a 10-year loan to the government. And this is what's known as yield curve inversion. The yield curve has inverted on the U.S. 10-year and the U.S. 5-year treasury bonds. Now, when the yield curve inverts like that, that is what's known as a telltale sign that a recession is on the way. 
it's one of the biggest markers that people look for in the markets to try and predict a recession on the horizon. But the point that I want to make here is that both of these bond yields don't even make any sense because we have inflation running at over 8% a year as measured by the consumer price index, but yet you're only going to get paid 2.38% interest every year if you make a 10-year loan to the government. So in other words, your real interest rate accounting for inflation is negative, uh, about negative 5.8%. So there's no reason why anyone would intentionally make a loan to receive a real rate of return of negative 5.2%. And so, as I've mentioned, because of that, bonds are uninvestable. Now, if you take that further, look at the the 20 and 30-year treasury rates. Now, if you invest in a 20-year bond, you're going to get slightly more than you'd get for a U.S. 10-year. But the U.S. 30-year treasury bond is only paying 2.44% interest if you buy one today. So you loan money to the U.S. government for 30 years, lock your money up for 30 years today, and you're only going to get paid 2.44% interest per year every year for 30 years. Meanwhile, inflation is running at 8% a year. So by the time you actually get your money back, plus the interest on the loan, you're actually going to lose almost all of your purchasing power during that 30 years. And so there's no reason why anyone would loan money to the government at those interest rates. And again, why would you make, even if you wanted to buy bonds, why would you make a 30-year loan to the government to get paid 2.4% interest if you can loan the money to the government for 10 years and get paid 2.3% interest? In other words, you can lock your money up for 20 less years, but only get 0.1% interest less on your loan. Of course, in that case, nobody is going to buy long-term U.S. Treasury bonds. And because nobody wants to buy long-term U.S. Treasury bonds, nobody is buying them. And that is why most of the government debt, again, the government's in over $30 trillion of debt, most of that is in short-term treasury bills, and most of that debt is due to be paid back over the next year. Because again, as I mentioned, nobody wants to loan the government money for 30 years when they can get a very similar rate of interest for loaning the government money over the course of one year, two years, or five years. And so all the investors that are buying bonds, which there aren't very many of them, are buying the short-term rates because that's how they're allocating capital on the sidelines in case they want to buy stocks in the future if there are further dips. But here's the problem with this. When it comes to all these uh, these rates, right? again, nobody, no real investors will buy bonds in this scenario. The only two buyers of bonds in this scenario are traders who think they can make a short-term profit by buying the bonds and selling them at a higher price, or the Federal Reserve. Now, I'm going to cover the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, which was supposed to be released today. It's usually released at 4.30 Eastern time uh, on Thursdays, but it wasn't released today. But I'll go over the release that they made last week. But anyway, I want to go over the performance of some of the the, uh, overall markets for Q1. Again, we wrapped up Q1 earlier today. Now, the S&P 500 for the year so far, again, we're one quarter in. The S&P 500 is down 4.3% year to date. 
And again, that's after a huge relief rally. It was down much more before. On the other hand, gold is up 7.8% for the first quarter, which shows an outperformance of the general markets of 12.1%. So if you own gold during Q1 of 2022, you outperform the markets by 12%. Now that is a huge outperformance of the general markets for just one quarter. If you extrapolate that out for the year, that is over a 48% outperformance of the markets annualized. Now it's even worse if you look at the NASDAQ because the NASDAQ year to date for the first quarter was down 9.1%, almost finished the quarter in correction territory. Now, if you look at other markets, look at the uh, the oil market. Oil is up 66% for the first quarter. We finished the quarter trading at about $100 per barrel. If you recall me saying before we started the year, I expected oil prices to rise well above $100 per barrel this year. We're only three months in and that prediction's already come true. And believe me, there's a lot more room to run on these oil prices. And you can say, yes, I couldn't have foreseen the Russia-Ukraine situation coming, which is true. But we have to remember, there was a very, very tight oil market before this conflict even started. Because of oil prices being suppressed so much over the past few years, very few investments have been made to build new oil rigs for more oil production. And remember, there's been the whole movement with ESG, with uh, you know, trying to move to a greener society. And so there hasn't been as much investment in the oil industry. And so now we have such a tight market in the oil industry that there is a lot more room to run for oil prices. Now, with that, I also want to look at the dollar index. With all the inflation going on, there is inflation going on a- across many different economies. Don't get me wrong. You look at the United States, at Europe, the UK, uh, Japan, there is inflation all over the globe because a lot of nations are participating in quantitative easing. Now, if you look at the dollar index, though, the dollar index finished the first quarter up 2.1%. So even though there's 8% inflation in the United States economy and the dollar is getting weaker in terms of its purchasing power of goods and services within the economy, the dollar is actually rising in value against other fiat currencies around the world. So the dollar is getting stronger, and yet we have all of this inflation. Now, the point I want to make is imagine what's going to happen to the U.S. dollar or to the inflation if the U.S. dollar starts to go down in value, and that is going to happen eventually. Now, I think the dollar caught a brief uh, rally because of a lot of the conflicts going around the globe. And so investors have sought out a safe haven currency, which most people look to the U.S. dollar as a safe haven currency. Now, of course, it's not a safe haven currency because we have 8% inflation per year and rising. And so you can't consider something that gives you a negative 8% return per year as a safe haven. And again, that's why gold is doing well, because people are starting to recognize that you cannot hold cash on the sidelines. Because if you're holding cash on the sidelines, you're essentially locking in an 8% loss per year due to the loss in purchasing power because of inflation. And so people are buying gold to escape that inflation. But the other important point to make here 
is oil is priced in U.S. dollars all over the world. And so the fact that oil is up 66% in the face of a rising U.S. dollar shows that there's a lot more room to run for the oil markets. And the same thing goes for the gold market. Gold is up and it's up against a rising dollar. So when the dollar starts to fall in value, gold prices are going to go a lot higher and oil prices are going to go a lot higher. And also, as the dollar falls in value, all consumer goods are going to go up in price. But all commodities will continue to go up in price. Another important sector to look at in the markets was the agriculture sector. Now, if you look at the agriculture sector, a lot of the agricultural goods, services, and stocks were up over 30% on the quarter. I'm looking at Archer Daniels Midland, which is one of the main agriculture producers in the United States. That stock was up 33% for the quarter. Now, another important point that I want to make about the, uh, the gold market is... I've been watching it very closely over the past uh, few months, and every time there is some sort of a knee-jerk reaction where traders sell gold off in the markets and it takes a $10 or $20 dip, there is instantly some dip buyers coming in and bidding the price back up. So it's acting very, very, uh, very, very well in the face of adversity. You know, it's acting sort of like a a tennis ball in the sense that it continues to bounce off the lows. Every time traders sell gold off, there's institutional buyers coming in and buying those dips in gold. And again, they're starting to buy because they're recognizing that you can't hold cash on the sidelines in this environment because that cash is losing its value to inflation. And so institutional buyers are starting to buy gold to escape that inflation and to avoid the inflation risk in the future, as we continue to see prices rise and no evidence of any slowdown in inflation in the next several months. And one of the ways that I know that it's not traders buying up the gold on the dips and that it is, in fact, institutional buyers and investors is looking at the gold mining stocks. Now, I mentioned that gold is outperforming the S&P 500 by 12 0.1% so far this year. But if you look at the gold mining sector, if you bought gold mining stocks, you're outperforming the general markets by way more than 12%. If you look at the GDX, which is the senior mining index, that index is up 22% over the first quarter. So that's outperforming the markets by 26%. Now, if you look at the GDXJ, which is the junior mining companies, the smaller, more speculative mining companies in the markets, that index is only up 14% year to date, which is still outperforming the S&P 500 by 18%, which is a very huge mark for just one quarter. But it's important to understand between the difference between these two indexes, the GDXJ is more speculative in nature because it's a lot of smaller companies. And so therefore, it typically has a much higher leveraged uh, amount to the gold price. So in other words, typically speaking in a regular market, if the gold price rises or falls by 1%, the GDXJ will typically rise or fall by 4% or more. Uh, conversely, 
if the GDX, the senior gold mining companies, the bigger, less speculative companies, if the gold price rises or falls by 1% on a given day or week, typically that index will only fall or rise by 2 or 3%. In other words, you get a lot more beta risk and reward with the GDXJ because they're more speculative companies. But as, as I mentioned, the GDXJ is up only 14% for the quarter, but the GDX is up 22% for the quarter. So that is very rare that you have the GDX outperforms the GDXJ on a quarter. But the important thing about this is it shows that there are institutional buyers coming into the market and buying gold and buying the gold mining stocks because the bigger institutional players are not going to buy the smaller, more leveraged, more risky uh, players in the gold mining sector. If they're in there buying, they're going to buy the large cap gold mining stocks like the Newmont Minings, like the Barrick Golds of the world. And so the fact that the GDX is outperforming the GDXJ by 8% shows me that a lot of the buying in this market is institutional investors. And again, as I mentioned, the gold price, every time we see gold sell off because of some news announcement, it's immediately bought back up and immediately recovers all of the price gains. Last week, gold actually dropped to about $1,890 per ounce and within the same session, recovered all of those losses and finished the session last week at $1,920 an ounce. And as I'm speaking, gold is trading at $1,939 per ounce and it ended the quarter at about $1,937 per ounce. But I'll talk about more, more about gold in a bit. But again, look at the 10-year bond yields. On the quarter, they went from 1.668% to 1.327%. In other words, a increase of 39.5%. Now, we did get some economic data over the past few days that I wanted to go over uh, some of the stuff that I missed over the last few weeks as I was away. Now, we got unemployment claims yesterday or uh, this morning, and we got 202,000 new unemployment claims. Not much of a shocking number there. We were expecting 195,000 uh, unemployment claims. We did get the personal income numbers month over month. There we saw a 0.5% increase, which again came in with expectations. But if you look at the past uh, three months, we got 0.5% this past month. There was 0% gain in personal income month over month uh, for January. And if you go back to December, personal income month over month only went up 0.3%. Now, again, inflation is completely outpacing these personal income numbers, which means that corporate profits are going to start shrinking and contracting in the next few quarters. Another point with that is that because it's tax season, a lot of people are filing their taxes and they're actually going to get a much smaller tax refund than they thought they would. Normally, families expect to get pretty big tax refunds, especially families with a good amount of kids. But we have to remember that the child tax credits and the stimulus payments that went out over the past year 
uh, are going to have to be accounted for when people file their taxes this year. And a lot of people don't understand the tax implications behind that and the fact that they're going to get a much smaller return this year than they otherwise thought or even owe money when they thought they were going to get a return. So that's also going to slow these consumers' ability to continue to spend down as we continue to move into the spring and summer months. Now, we also got the core PCE price index month over month the other day. Uh, there we were looking for an increase in uh, of 0.4%, uh, and that's exactly what we got. Now, again, this is the change in the price of goods and services purchased by consumers, um, and it excludes food and energy. And this is one of the key targets that the Fed looks at for measuring inflation. But again, it's still continuing to go up. It was up 0.4% on the month. So if you extrapolate that out for an entire year, that shows that this year we're going to have inflation uh, on top of last year's inflation of 4%. So we had 8% inflation last year. The PCE of this month is showing a 0.4% rise, which would be extrapolated out for, again, over 4% inflation in 2022. That means we're going to have 12% inflation officially over the past two, two years. But again, that's just officially. The real inflation is much, much higher. If you're out there buying anything from goods to services, you know that inflation is much higher. And again, the consumer is just getting weaker and weaker. And lastly, we got personal spending month over month. There we were looking for an increase of 0.5%, but we only got an increase of 0.2%. So again, more signs that the consumer is slowing down. A lot of these price increases that are going on in the economy, again, a lot of businesses have been having to pass on costs that they did not pass on last year because they thought inflation was transitory. They're now passing those costs on to the customers now, and the customers are showing slowdowns that they can't handle it. And again, a lot of the ways that consumers are handling this is through taking on more and more debt. But if interest rates tighten, the, their ability of the consumer to take on more and more debt is going to be diminished. And again, this just shows that the economy is slowing down, it's contracting, and the odds of a recession coming in the next few months are getting greater and greater. And if, if even if we don't have a recession, corporate profits are contracting which means that valuations of businesses are going to have to come down and growth expectations for businesses are going to have to come down in the future, which is more headwinds that the market is going to face as we head into Q2 and Q3 of this year. Now, one of the things I wanted to go over that I haven't really covered uh, over the past couple months is the home building sector. Now, one of the new... Uh, ideas that I have for the markets is shorting the home building sector. Now, if you look at the iShares U.S. Home Construction ETF, ticker ITB, this is an index that's down 26% over the first quarter of this year, was down another 3.5% today. The home building sector has been extremely weak in the markets, and I think it has a lot longer to fall. And there's several reasons for this. Um, for one, the home building business has gotten very difficult because of rising costs in the economy. Materials prices to build homes are skyrocketing. Copper prices are going up. Lumber prices are going up. Steel prices are going up. All materials prices are going up. 
Also, because of the price of oil going up, it's getting more and more expensive to be able to transport these materials to the job sites to build new homes. And then the other cost that, of course, is going up is the cost of labor. So you have costs across the board for this entire industry are rising substantially. And you also have uh, very low interest rates right now. So mortgages are still very, very cheap right now. But if interest rates start to rise, then that means that there's going to be a lot of people that can't afford as big of a mortgage. And so therefore, people are going to be able to afford to buy less of a home when they go by. And so especially if you're building new homes, there's a lot less availability to be able to buy those homes. Now, the one caveat to this is that a lot of the investment banks have been buying up real estate. And so there's still room for the uh, investment banks to come in and buy new home construction. But still, I think that's very limited. And I think that a lot of people, especially as the consumer is continuing to stretch more and more, as we know from the economic data we got last week, the consumer is slowing down. And so the consumer doesn't have as much purchasing power to buy a new home. And so to the extent people are going to still be in the market looking for a house, they're probably going to look to buy existing homes. So this is sort of a perfect storm that's developing for the home construction industry. And again, th this index is still up substantially from the uh, over the past five years. And again, the, the housing market's starting to slow down. You know, interest rates have risen slightly, but again, they haven't risen anywhere near as much as they are about to rise. And again, the Federal Reserve still hasn't even started shrinking its balance sheet yet. And a big part of that balance sheet is all of the mortgage-backed securities that they hold on that balance sheet. So if the Fed starts to shrink their balance sheet as they're saying they're going to, that means that you have uh, mortgage rates are going to start to rise substantially. And that is going to cause a big problem for a lot of Americans that don't have a lot of money to put as big down payments on a house. Um, even if you look last year, and I, I went over this a few weeks ago, the average home down payment was only 12%. And for millennials, the average home down payment was only 6%. So if interest rates start to rise and mortgage, mortgage payments start to become more expensive, there's going to be a lot less buyers on the market looking for new homes. And even the buyers that are out there in the market looking to buy a house, they're going to probably shift their demand towards existing homes rather than looking at new construction. Because again, new construction and new homes are going to get extremely expensive because of the rise in materials and labor to build these new homes. Now, we, you know, we have, we see asset prices are starting to come down again in Q1, the markets, whether you look at the S&P, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, uh, the housing market, prices have started to come down on financial assets. Now, again, the Fed still only raised rates one time to a quarter, one quarter of 1%, and they are still actively printing more money to purchase more bonds and more mortgage-backed securities. Now, the Federal Reserve... Uh, Two, over two weeks ago, announced that they were going to end quantitative easing and start raising interest rates. But since then, over the past two weeks, they've purchased more and more assets. So they've printed even more money to buy even more treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Their balance sheet now sits at $8.96 trillion, which is the highest it's ever been. 
Now, of course, like I mentioned, they're supposed to release their balance sheet numbers on Thursday afternoon. They didn't release them today for some reason. So I'm going to have to get back to you on where the balance sheet went to after this week. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they purchased even more assets this week, because again, as I've been saying, they say they're going to fight inflation by shrinking the money supply. But then when it comes time to actually doing it, they're doing something different than what they're actually saying they're doing. Again, how are you going to fight inflation if interest rates are one quarter of 1%, but inflation is officially 8% and continues to rise? That a uh, 0.25% interest rate policy is an extremely accommodative, stimulative interest rate policy. And that's just going to fuel the inflation fire that is already running. So that's not going to be enough to fight inflation. In fact, it's actually going to create more inflation. Again, especially as they continue to print more money and put it into the market by buying bonds. But we still haven't received the CPI print for March. Um, and that is going to be the first CPI print that we get that is going to include the price hikes on food and energy uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The last time we got the consumer price index that measures inflation, uh, it was prior to Russia invading Ukraine and prior to the huge spike in oil prices and food prices. So, uh, and again, again, it's affected a lot of other materials prices. So we haven't even gotten the CPI for that yet. It's possible that the CPI reading we do get for March is actually going to show annualized inflation of over 10%. That's actually a very possible real number. But again, producer prices are still rising. Uh, because of wages, materials, transportation expenses from higher oil prices. And so we're going to continue to experience high inflation. And again, as I mentioned before, most investors are turning to U.S. stocks in order to avoid this inflation. Now, I do agree that you do need to own stocks in large part to try and avoid this inflation. But the type of stocks you own is very important. Now, if you look at the, um, excuse me, if you look at the stocks that you want to own, you really want to own more value-oriented stocks. A lot of the investors have been coming in and buying different uh, growth stocks. Again, the ARK Innovation Fund up over 27% from the lows. Now, there's no reason to want to buy those stocks because, again, those are a lot of stocks that are not making any money. And when you have inflation, you want uh, companies that are producing profits now that you don't have to wait years for and that are paying dividends now that can pay you dividends and raise their prices to collect more profits to pay you higher dividends to cover the rising costs of inflation. But the more important thing that I want to go over is why it's important to own gold in your portfolio and have that as an allocation in your portfolio. Now, first of all, you never, in my opinion, want to be 100% fully invested in the markets and owning stocks because there's always a, a chance that there's going to be a pullback in stocks. And if you're fully invested when there's a pullback, 
you can't take advantage by buying stocks at lower prices if you already have 100% of your funds in the market. So it's very important to keep some cash on the sidelines for when those downturns do take place. Now, as I mentioned before, in this environment, makes absolutely no sense to have cash on the sidelines because any money that you keep in cash on the sidelines is guaranteed to lose 8% of its value per year and more as inflation continues to increase. And that is why you should have an allocation in your portfolio to gold in this environment. Now, typically, it depends on your financial situation and how much risk you want to take. But typically speaking, I would say you should keep about 10% of your portfolio, your investable money in gold. And again, that's because you want to keep some cash on the sidelines. But because you don't want to keep cash, you keep gold. It's like a cash equivalent, essentially, because this way, if stocks drop, you can then sell your gold to get cash and buy more stocks. As I mentioned before, the gold outperformed the S&P 500 by 12% over the past quarter. So in that situation, if you wanted to buy stocks tomorrow, you could sell your gold, which outperformed the market by 12%, and then buy even more stocks with it tomorrow on the dip that it took in the first quarter. But that's why you want to have gold in your portfolio. But the reason you want to have gold specifically, again, in your portfolio instead of cash, because real interest rates are negative, right? If you keep cash, you will lose 8% a year on that cash position. If you keep gold, you're not losing anything on that position. If interest rates were positive, let's say real interest rates were 2%, positive 2%. If you chose to own gold instead of cash and that small amount of money that you're keeping on the sideline, you're sacrificing that 2% interest a year that you could get on your cash by holding gold. And so positive interest rates are bearish for gold for that reason, because you don't get a yield when you own gold. And so therefore, when you own gold, you're sacrificing whatever yield you would have gotten had you kept that money in cash. But if interest rates are negative 8%, as they are right now on your short-term cash, you're actually gaining 8% by owning gold instead of holding cash. And that's because it's an inflation hedge. And again, by owning gold instead of owning cash, you're getting out of that negative 8% return that's locked in for cash. But the reason gold is an inflation hedge is because it's a commodity, just like oil, or steel, or lumber, or copper, right? <clears throat> Commodities generally go up in price when there's inflation. And the reason being is because inflation is an expansion of the money supply. So as you have an expansion of the money supply, it takes more money to buy the commodities that you need, right? So in other words, oil prices, as long as we continue to print more money, are going to continue to go up. Now, the reason that you would own you know, the reason that oil holds its value is because it has intrinsic value you can use it to power your car or machinery and so as money becomes less valuable it takes more money to purchase the commodities that you need and gold again is a commodity it's used in consumer electronics 
It's used in aviation and aerospace engineering. It's used in jewelry, in the dentist industry. It has all sorts of uses, and it is a commodity the same way oil is a commodity. Now, the reason you own gold is because it's easy to store. If, if you know you need to use oil two, three, four years into the future, and you think that the price of oil is going to go up because there's going to be higher inflation, you can't just buy oil because you have nowhere to store it. But what you can do is you can buy gold and store it very easily. And then when you need to buy oil in the future, you can exchange your gold for oil, or you can exchange your gold for US dollars and buy oil with the US dollars. And so therefore, by owning a commodity, it allows you to hedge against inflation by not having any exposure to inflation. Because again, inflation is an expansion of the money supply, and that is when the money becomes less valuable. And so that's why gold in particular is an inflation hedge. And it's the perfect inflation hedge because it's easy to store. But again, you want to have 10% of your portfolio in cash or short-term cash position that could be uh, gold if you convert your cash to gold. Because again, then if you have a downturn in the markets, you avoid that downturn with some of your money, and then you can come in later on and buy up assets at a lower price. And it's very important to manage your bankroll properly. Again, you shouldn't always have 100% of your money invested into the markets. You also shouldn't buy, you shouldn't buy stocks on margin or on leverage, right? And you probably shouldn't be investing either if you have consumer debt, right? You need to take care of your consumer debt first and get rid of that debt so you're not all levered up. And this way you're not buying stocks or other investments when you, you, ha- when you have uncertainty in your life situation, right? Because if you invest money in the markets and then it turns out there's some sort of emergency and you don't have any emergency money around to cover that cost, now maybe you have to pull your money out of the market when it's down, right? If you put all your money into the market three or four months ago and now you have some sort of an emergency today and you have no other way to 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 pay for that emergency, if you got to pull your money out of the market now after it just had a downturn for the first quarter, you know, you've left yourself no choice because you didn't have any money set aside for emergencies. And again, that's why you should always, before you're investing, you need to pay off your consumer debt. You need to have some emergency money saved in case there's a situation that comes up that you need to pay for. And then after that, again, whatever money you do have left over to invest, a small percentage of that should be kept out of the markets just in case there's a huge downturn in the markets and there's an opportunity to buy more stocks at lower prices. But again, I do agree with the general uh, thesis on the street where you can't own bonds today. You can't own cash. As Ray Dalio says, cash is trash. There's no reason to own something when you know it's going to go down by at least 8% a year every single year that you own it. So you have to own real assets. You have to own commodities, more specifically gold, because again, it's easier to own gold. Keep a small allocation to gold in your portfolio. If you're a smaller investor and you can't put 10% of your portfolio in gold because that's you, you, can't, you don't have enough money to buy gold, uh, then buy silver. Right. Silver is a better alternative if you're a smaller investor because it's cheaper to buy silver. 
but you want to own real assets like commodities, like real estate, like uh, like stocks, right? But again, value stocks, businesses that are earning money, that are have the ability to increase their uh, prices on their customers without affecting sales volume so that they can earn more money and pass those higher earnings on to you in the form of a dividend and help you avoid inflation. For example, if you own an agriculture business, that business is very easily able to pass on 8% higher costs to their customers because their customers need to buy food whether they, they want to buy it at higher prices or not. And so if an agriculture company can raise their prices by 8%, and therefore earn more money as the cost of living is rising by 8%, they can pay you a higher dividend. And so that helps shield you as the investor from higher living costs. But again, those are the types of businesses you want to own. And I know I haven't been on for a few weeks, but really nothing in the market has changed other than we've had a small relief rally. But again, inflation is still the biggest problem we're facing, whether the Russia and Ukraine situation gets resolved or not. And again, inflation is going to continue to run out of control because the Federal Reserve has no ability to fight inflation. And why do they have no ability to fight inflation? Because the way you fight inflation is you let interest rates rise. If interest rates rise even a small amount from here, then all of the debtors in our economy, whether it be the U.S. government, the individual corporations, state and local governments, they can't afford to service their debt with higher interest rates. And again, that's that's the problem. And nobody will loan the government money without there being much higher interest rates because they won't get compensated otherwise for the loss of purchasing power on their loan due to inflation. And again, that's why the bond market is in very bad shape. But believe me, this, the decline we've seen in the past few months in the bond market is nothing like what we're going to see in the next year or two. Now, the bond market has had a substantial decline for Q1. Bonds altogether in the treasury market were down about 5.5% for the first quarter. Now, that is a huge loss for the bond market over that quarter because, again, if you extrapolate that out for the year, that represents a 20% annualized loss on those bonds. That is a huge loss, especially if you compare it to stocks. Because not only is that a, a higher loss than what the S&P 500 had, but again, look at bonds, right? Bond, bond can, bonds can only give you such a high reward, right? In other words, they're supposed to be a low risk, low reward investment. So when you buy low, what's supposed to be low risk uh, investments like bonds, you're not expecting to get a 20% decline annually or a 5% decline for a quarter. And especially considering that most people who are supposed to own bonds are supposed to be risk adverse and own them in retirement accounts. But so that is a huge loss for bonds considering they're supposed to be a low risk, low reward asset. But also, again, this is a, this is the just the start of a huge change in the markets because of how high inflation is. And investors are starting to recognize that bonds are uninvestable. And so if the Federal Reserve is going to start shrinking their balance sheet and selling the bonds that they own back into the market, the $8.96 trillion worth of bonds into the market, there's no investors there to buy those bonds back up 
unless the interest rates shoot way up, which means the bond prices have to then come crashing down. And again, this is probably one of the biggest problems in the market is the bond market. And there is a very real possibility that we're going to continue to see huge declines in treasury bond prices. And again, as those prices decline, interest rates are going to shoot way up. And if interest rates shoot way up, that means that all else being equal, stock prices will have to come down because as interest rates go up, valuations on businesses have to go down. And again, this is also with corporate profits starting to shrink because the consumer is already stretched beyond belief. And that is with the consumer still going into debt because of low credit conditions because of artificially low interest rates. If interest rates shoot up, those credit conditions go away, consumer spending goes away. So there's a lot of problems that we have that we're heading into Q2. And again, go back to the podcast that I did to start the year, uh, late December, um, doing the 2022 outlook, and look at some of the predictions I made for the markets. Pretty much 90% of them have all come true. Um, on all my takes on different sectors of the market. But that's because there is a real change going on here. Again, there's a rotation outside of the uh, the growth stocks going on underneath. Even though the stocks had a relief rally in broader U.S. markets, if you look closely at the value stocks in the U.S. and in emerging markets, they are still outperforming growth stocks in a big way. Uh, gold is starting to outperform very, very nicely. And again, I can see by the action, it's not just traders that are buying gold, but it is long-term institutional investors, and there's a real shift in the markets. And I've never seen a risk-reward scenario for shorting bonds here, because again, there's a limit to how high bond prices can go, but there is no limit to how far they can fall because they are way too expensive, and you have the Federal Reserve promising to sell $9 trillion worth of bonds back onto the market. Now, whether or not they're able to do that, we'll have to see. But even if they can't come through with selling all those bonds back onto the market, that just means inflation is going to run out of control. And if inflation runs out of control, that means that all the bonds that are selling on the market are going to be worth less to not less next to nothing because as inflation rises, promises to be paid dollars in the future are going to be worth even less and less. And the bond market really has a lot of problems to move forward. And so do the overall U.S. markets and so does the U.S. economy.